Stranger Than Christian is sponsored by MDD Staffing Incorporated. You know, when you're looking for professional in-home care, a meticulous level of detail is so important. You don't want to leave the most cherished elements of your life to just anybody. That's where MDD Staffing comes in. They are a premier domestic staffing agency working to fill household jobs with the absolute best candidates available. Their standards are high and their interviews are thorough because that's what their families expect. The result of this approach is top-notch care from experienced, fully vetted professionals. Owned and operated by one of the most sought-after professional nannies in Boston, MDD Staffing is committed to maintaining the highest standard of excellence in all of its placements. Nannies, babysitters, dog walkers, housekeepers, and so much more. For more information or to explore the services available to you, email mddstaffing at gmail.com, find them on Facebook, or visit mddstaffing.com. And The Wash Vintage clothing and accessories at unbelievable prices. Search for The Wash Vintage on eBay to browse a vast selection of rare, unique, and fashionable merchandise. Follow The Wash Vintage on Instagram to get an exclusive look at sales, promotions, and the new stock that's added each and every week. The Wash Vintage for the masses. This is my second to last episode here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Hope you enjoy. From Los Angeles, California, this is Stranger Than Christian. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to another episode of Stranger Than Christian. My name is Christian Carrion. Hi. Um, Valentine's Day went really well. I made a pizza from scratch. I did, um, I found a recipe for a pizza dough that doesn't use yeast, and I added rosemary to it. And we did, well, I did uh, fresh mozzarella, a little bit of shredded mozz, um, some oregano, some basil, um, mushrooms. And, oh, my God, it just came out so good. And I'm so happy that I was able to make something kind of off the board for Valentine's Day for my wife because she was working that day. Um, I love pizza. And talking about pizza with my friend Patrick last week um, from Connecticut reminded me how much I miss New Haven pizza. Lancaster pizza is okay. You know, in a pinch, I won't say no to it. But when you come from the undisputed pizza capital of the world, I mean, there's no question which one is better and which one I'd rather have. Thinking about New Haven pizza, and for anybody who doesn't know, New Haven pizza is characterized by this, you know, it's brick oven. And so when you eat, for example, my favorite is modern pizza on State Street in New Haven, Connecticut. When you eat modern pizza, um, you get this like black sort of soot and it's grease and it's you know remnants of the charcoal that's in the oven and it's it's a very rustic misshapen experience and thinking about how my life has been shaped by the food that I eat coming from a place like New Haven and thinking about how those design aesthetics inform what I do I realized that my show is like New Haven pizza <laughs> my show is very misshapen and 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 it's a little burned on the edges and but I like to think 
it tastes better than the big guys. You know what I mean? So thinking about that makes me even more excited that in a couple of weeks, this will be an independent project again, and I will no longer be under the auspices of Radio Free Brooklyn, as great as they are. They are a great station, and they have play wonderful music, and a lot of talented people running that station and, and, and putting shows on there. It just isn't the place for me at this time. So uh, I announced it last week, and I'll just say it again, March 1st, Monday, March 1st, is the final episode of Stranger Than Christian on Radio Free Brooklyn. It is not the final episode of the show. The show will continue. Um, actually, that following weekend, the show will continue. Uh, there will be no interruption in programming. You will have a new episode every Saturday on every streaming service on StrangerThanChristian.com, my website. And <sighs> YouTube is, like, hard to... I'm, I'm I'm having trouble fitting in YouTube into the schedule of like places that I upload these things on. So I think what I might do is like batch upload the episodes a few at a time on YouTube. Um, if, if you're really interested in hearing it on YouTube and I don't know about you, shout me out. Uh, StrangerThanChristian at gmail.com is the email address and I respond to every message I get. So please don't be shy. <laughs> Today I'm talking to Sandy. Sandy was a joy to speak with. Sandy is a former journalist, and she had a lot of interesting stories for me. Journalists have the best stories. Uh, journalists, uh, hospitality workers, there there are a few jobs that just lend themselves really well to telling stories of their time out in the field. Um, I had never had a guest who's been kidnapped before, so we're going to talk all about that. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I'll just tell you one more time. Facebook at Stranger Than Christian, Twitter at Stranger Than C, and Patreon.com slash Stranger Than Christian for the unedited, unfiltered, unmastered version of my conversation with Sandy. And time is ticking on the unmastered series on Patreon. I will hopefully think of something to replace it. In the meantime, I think that putting out the show unedited baseline is a great celebration of this newfound creative independence um, that I'm feeling as a result of taking this show on the road by myself again. So I'm really excited for it, and I'm really excited you're here as well. I will bring you that conversation with Sandy in just a minute. But first, here's a word of interest about a phenomenal program on the Apocalypse Podcast Network. You're listening to Stranger Than Christian on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay right there. <sighs> Could it be the giant pink dress? <gasps> you didn't like what? You didn't like a Jimbo outfit? How dare you? I know. Hi, I'm Mijan. And I'm Nick. I like to call myself a semi drag race expert. And I've never seen it before. So join us on our podcast, Whispering Hunties, every week for drag race expertise. And the exact opposite of that. Either way, it's a kiki. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, okay. Get How out, could I possibly take your no. cute cats that keep walking all over you <laughs> and making know. me wish that I had a My pet? Sweet little and debris. Get, get out of this podcast. I need a door slam like <laughs> right now as I throw you out of the house. <laughs> Hello, Christian. Hey, Sandy. Hi. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. And you? 
I, I'm, I'm doing just fine. You are on the other side of the country from me, I think. I'm in Pennsylvania. You're in California? That's exactly correct. I used to live in uh, Philadelphia when I was a little girl, but it's been a very long time since I've lived on the East Coast. So, uh, but I do remember the very, very harsh winters. So I can't say that I'm jealous of your location right now. That's really all you need to know about the East Coast (laughs) is the ridiculous winters. We haven't had much snow this year, though. They're talking about a lot this week, but so far there's been next to none. I think we had one big snow day, but it was gone by like two days Hmm. after. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, unless you really like, you know, snow sports or, or that kind of thing, which I don't. So <laughs> No, no, me neither. I, I love snow. I like looking at snow from the window. That's really the, the greatest extent that I enjoy snow is like watching it. I, snow is a spectator sport for me. I agree. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Christian. So I feel like I've talked to enough people at this point that I've realized that it's very rare to talk to somebody that's a native of California or a native of Los Angeles, which you are from as well, right? I am. um, Surprisingly, uh, I'm a little bit from everywhere. Um, My parents were um, born in Mexico, but they're of uh, different you know, European descent. Uh, I have British ancestry, Italian ancestry, certainly Spanish, and of course, indigenous. But I was born in Puerto Rico, like yourself. Oh, how great is that? Well, I wasn't born in Puerto Rico, but my family, that's, I I was the first generation born in America, but I am Puerto Rican. So that's, that's, that's wonderful to know. Interesting. Yeah. No, I thought you had been born there because I remember listening to a podcast recently uh, where you were mentioning that you had been there, but I guess you meant uh, that you traveled there with your family uh, at some point, right? Rather than being born there. That's right. The only proof I have is a picture of me on a goat. (laughs) I can't say I remember any goats. Well, I was only just a baby, so I wouldn't know. But yeah, interesting. Maybe the goat came with us. I don't know, but. It's possible. It is possible. It is. is, Yeah. When you're that young, you just go along with whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, go to Puerto Rico. Fine. (laughs) That's funny. You you don't ask for an itinerary or anything like that. So what brought you to Los Angeles? Well, let me tell you, Christian, I lived in Mexico City for the longest of times um, ever since I was like uh, a young teenager up until couple a few years ago um while in mexico city i was uh, an editorial coordinator for a major newspaper and i was extremely passionate about that i was um i i held that position for a little bit over 15 years and it was something that i loved christian i mean it, i couldn't have uh i don't have any complaints about the time that i that i um worked for that newspaper. However, uh, when you work in in media and very specifically in um, newspapers, there's really no no time off. You're working 24 hours a day in in many regards. There's there's simply, uh, like, you know, in, in many other lines of work, you can say, okay, so I'm a little bit tired. I think I'll just go home and I'll, you know, continue tomorrow. But when you need to keep up with a new cycle, there's just no way to do that. And um, I used to work maybe 14-hour days, 15-hour days, 16-hour days, which was fine because I was very passionate about that. But after um, several years, I felt that it was important for me to to make a change in that regard. Um, There were very specific reasons for that. And I thought, okay, it would be a very good idea to move to the U.S. for starters because, um, firstly... I think that here, um, work days are a little bit more structured and there's less of um, propensity for people working like, 
those long, uh, those extremely long hours. Uh, uh, workday here, you know, it's over by five, um, so that's that's wonderful. And that is exactly my situation right now. I started on a totally different career path, also very fascinating, but I'm home by, by six. So that makes a world of a difference, you can imagine. And now what type of career had you moved to when you moved to America? So you were, you were the editor of a newspaper. Now, what do you do now? Well, it was quite interesting. I'm in a field now that wasn't even on my radar when I moved here because I didn't know it existed, which is court interpreting. Um, I had never done any interpreting, let alone uh, I hadn't even been to a courthouse. I don't even recall seeing a courthouse from the outside, really. But uh, it ended up being a field that I adore. I think I'm very fortunate that way. Often I hear people complaining about their jobs or saying that there are, you know, uh, pros and cons. But in my case, I feel that it was something that was perfectly suited to the things that I'm interested in, the skills that I have. So it just worked out perfectly. And the wonderful thing is that although it's a demanding career, it's uh, full time, it does leave me enough time to do other things. So now I not only do that, but I'm also a writer. I just wrote a book. I'm also an artist now. I've sold a few paintings. I'm also an amateur winemaker. I'm doing a little bit of that as well. So I feel that um, although right now, maybe I have less say disposable income perhaps, or maybe it's a little bit less prestigious in a sense, I do feel that my life is infinitely richer as a result of having made the move. Well, you and I, I have to tell you, are in the same boat. I've I found myself having the same experience recently because I, I've mentioned it on a few shows, but uh, five years in hospitality, I worked at a bunch of hotels and I got laid off last year. And now I work corporate side for a very small local supermarket. I work in their corporate office. And I never thought that type of job would suit me. I never thought because I, I'm very, if, if you can't tell by the fact that I have a show where I just call people and talk to them for an hour a week, I, I'm, a, I'm a people person and I enjoy the the person to person the interaction. Um, so I never thought that that would work, but it's so much simpler. It's so much more it's just a calming environment. I get to come home and, like you, do creative things that make me feel whole as a person and not just as a as a as a member of the workforce. And so, right, I also feel that my life has been greatly simplified. But yes, richer—that is the perfect word for it. And you know, it's interesting because I get the feeling that you also enjoyed your previous situation much like I did. It wasn't like we were unhappy in our previous jobs or anything like that. But for whatever reason, whatever circumstance, we ended up doing something that it appears to me that we enjoy just as much. And we also have time for these creative pursuits. So that's wonderful. You know, I, and I've noticed that in what and like in the things that I've done for a living, you know, I've always wanted to work in broadcasting. Like right now, talking to you, Sandy, is what I've wanted to do for my entire life. This is what my lifelong goal has been to be able to do this and to do it on my own terms, which I'm being able to do right now. And, and it's great. But whether it's working, uh, customer service or it's working at a hotel or it's any of those things, I've found that there are these core elements to those jobs 
that make me whole, that maybe for a while I didn't want to be a broadcaster. I wanted to be a person that got to talk to a lot of people every day. And those sort of base nutrients are being fulfilled in jobs like working at a front desk of a hotel or working at the customer service desk at a supermarket. That, you know, As different as they are from what my ultimate goal was, I found that I was being nourished in that way with those jobs. So yes, I was, I was happy doing those things. I think, Krista, that the reason we uh, found um, happiness uh, in, you know, in this past year and recent years also has a lot to do with our overall mindset. I mean, if we were able to enjoy our previous jobs and focus on the aspects of the jobs that we liked best, it seems to me that both you and I are the kind of people that are focusing on the good rather than the bad. And that's very important because I see a lot of people um, complaining about their jobs, not even looking to see if there's any aspect of their workday that they might enjoy, be it the camaraderie, I don't know, the free coffee, whatever the case may be. It's just like, no, 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 I hate it and my life is horrible. And that's really no way to live. I mean, uh, regardless of the situation you might find yourself in, there's always some aspect that might be appealing. And if there truly isn't, you can build it into your work yourself. You can bring Absolutely. Don't you think so? I mean, oh, of course, of course. Well, you know, and also I feel like and I don't know if this is a thing that specifically exists in America, if it's part of the American work ethic or if it's just part of humanity as a whole. But I think that there's this tendency to look at your job as the thing that defines the rest of your life, that if you work. For example, if you work at a supermarket, you are a supermarket worker. And one of the things I've tried to instill in myself, especially as I've gotten older, is the idea that the the job that you perform during the day is what enables you to be the creative person you want to be at night. You, you know, the thing that you do for a living doesn't define you. Like right now, you know, yeah, I, I worked an eight-hour day in the office today, but I'm still able to do this. And in that way, I feel like my job enables me – to go home and, for lack of a better phrase, do whatever I want. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. But, you know, there's another thing. What I have noticed uh, here in the States, uh, unlike elsewhere, I have lived in other places, including um, South Korea. And what I think is very uh, interesting about here in the States, Christian, is that a lot of the people that I have met, I would say most of them, if not all, they're kind of, regardless of their age, they're kind of like counting down the days to retirement. Like their work is such a horrifying thing that they cannot wait to be free from that. And that's also no way to live. I mean, I think that you should look into a career path that's certainly, I mean, it doesn't define you, absolutely not. And there are other things to be done throughout the day, but you also cannot have a, a nine to five that is horrifying to you to the degree that you're thinking like only 20 years ago. No, no, that's awful. <laughs> I right. Mean, oh, yeah. That's a prison right? sentence. Yeah, exactly. And nobody wants that. You should be happy uh, during your downtime and you should also be happy or uh, find, find, um, Find a career that you like, and if you cannot, uh, and I know, I mean, the job market is tight, it, all, it, it happens, but no matter what job you might find yourself in, there's always something that you might enjoy about it, and just certainly focus on that. Or let's say that you feel that maybe um, your talents are not being used uh, the way that they should, there's always a way to bring them into the workplace. You can speak with your supervisor, you can uh, you can seek um, promotions from within. You, there are many things that you can do. I mean, definitely, no, nobody should suffer during their day-to-day their -day job either. 
Of course. And it's cliche, but, you know, they say you find something that you enjoy and you'll never work a day in your life. I feel I, you know, with the experience I've had in my life thus far, I feel like that's very, very true. Oh, absolutely. Even when I was um, doing um, editing in Mexico. Yes, it, it here's the thing. Uh, I I loved it. I can't say that I didn't. And the only reason or reasons that I decided to move here and make that uh, dramatic shift was that there were certain personal things going on that that forced me to rethink this. I had to um, experience the untimely death of my father, then the death of my brother, uh, then a female friend. So I felt that although I really enjoyed my job, there were trade-offs. And one of the trade-offs was not seeing people I love as frequently as I would have liked because I couldn't. So that was one of the things that definitely, um, you know, motivated me to look into something else. And the other thing, Kristen, is that I really didn't have time for, for many things that most people take for granted. Like for instance, um, I don't know, I would see my best friend who was in a similar work situation just a few times a year. Or uh, as for dating, I would say that that was uh, the rarest uh, of occurrences. I never got married during that time. Like a number of things that people might assume uh, would be very normal in somebody's lifetime. But in my case, it was just not uh, feasible because I was at my desk, right? So it was a situation that was fine. And I did understand the trade-offs and I was happy about that. But after... After a while, I mean, that that definitely was something that gave me pause. I had become a mom and uh, a single mom, of course, and I wanted to spend more time with my child. I didn't want to keep outsourcing his care to nannies or, or um, re relying on family members. So that was definitely, definitely a big thing. And I think it was a good choice, Christian. You're listening to Stranger Than Christian with me, Christian Carrion on Radio Free Brooklyn. For more information, or to apply to be a guest on the show, visit StrangerThanChristian.com. New episodes air every Monday at 2 a.m. Eastern on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org and become available on all major streaming platforms the following Saturday. Subscribers on Patreon receive special benefits, including question submissions and unedited, ad-free versions of each new episode. Visit Patreon.com slash StrangerThanChristian to help support this creative venture. Thank you. you an extremely gory story <laughs> please tell me the goriest story you have <laughs> okay so um earlier this week i was scrolling through my instagram and i came across uh this profile for this uh, wrestler that was very popular in, in mexico city in the uh, mid 90s he was this man from canada uh, he called himself Vampiro Canadiense, or the Canadian Vampire. He was very, very popular. He was uh, also a nightlife fixture. He was like uh, good looking, so he had a lot, all of these female fans and, and such, right? But I really didn't know much about his career because I'm, I myself am not a 
a big wrestling fan, although I do remember running across this man in, in uh, you know, clubs in the day. So in any case, um, it was very interesting because I saw some of his throwback pictures and there were a few where he's like, I, I don't know, it was kind of shocking. He's like drenched in blood. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of horrifying. But then I, I read the captions. And the wrestler is saying that that was the match that made his career. Apparently, early on, he was like this big unknown. But he um, wrestled someone. And it's not very clear to me if he was hit or cut or what exactly went on. But for whatever reason, he started gushing blood. It doesn't appear to me that he was in great pain or in any danger. But it was just something very shocking to see. So much so that he became super popular overnight. Now, I'm sure nobody would want to, you know, have to bleed like crazy in order to become a, a wrestling sensation. But in his case, he said that that was the match that made his career. And he was extremely happy for that one occasion. I thought that was bizarre as can be. But it does illustrate the point that something that you would assume is like not great might eventually have a good out outcome or lead to a good outcome. Absolutely. And, you know, in the case of in the case of wrestling, and I am not an expert on this by any means, but my wife loves wrestling. And oh. she has told me that in in underground or amateur wrestling, one of the things and, and even in professional wrestling to a certain degree, one of the things they do is they will hide piece of glass or something small or sharp like a little razor blade or something they'll hide it in their wristband so <clears> that when they get hit they can quickly nick their forehead and bleed and that creates the illusion of of of, of i mean it, I mean, it's not an illusion they're actually bleeding but they will do that for show that is very interesting i never would have thought but in this case it's very clear that the wrestler uh enjoyed that match i mean i don't know if right. he was like i don't know if it wasn't painful or what but um he said that it really did make his career and he was hugely popular he was uh also a tv star he was a, a public figure he was very very popular i recall i don't i don't remember seeing any of his matches because i'm not into wrestling but he was very popular and uh right now actually i think he's um he has a new documentary about his his life and his career in mexico city and i think he also has a podcast himself these days but uh isn't that interesting i mean just something that you would never think would you know lead to making someone's career well there you go it's amazing what a little bit of blood can do <laughs> exactly you know or a lot of blood <laughs> I, or a lot right yeah i wonder if you could speak to me about you know Going back to what I was talking about, uh, the differences or the similarities, the commonalities between broadcasting and hospitality, and that between those two worlds, I found this common thread, which was the ability to talk to people from all over the world and to do that on a regular basis and get paid for it. I wonder if you could speak to me about the commonalities between the world of journalism and the world of professional interpreting. Are there values or goals or elements that those two professional worlds share? Let me tell you, it's interesting that you should say that. Um, let me uh, go back a little. Before I actually became an interpreter, but after I had already moved here, uh, I did need to support myself in some way. So what I did during that time period is I translated books. I translated a bunch of books, Christian, uh, maybe like 30. 
Uh, it's a uh, very, very, very draining activity. It's very difficult. It's very, um, it's very rough on the body, strangely, even more so than on, on the mind. Um, it could lead to carpal tunnel and whatnot. It's just something that's, that's uh, very hard on, on you, but it's quite fascinating. So I found that translating and interpreting are not similar. Uh, editing and writing is exactly like translating because translating requires you to be a writer. You cannot be an, uh, an efficient literary translator unless you're a writer and an editor. So I think those two are very much in line. However, interpreting is like a separate animal. Sometimes I, I do um, hosting or I work as a video presenter occasionally. I'm also a professional speaker. And I would say that interpreting is more in line with that kind of thing. It's in line with acting. It's in line with improv. Interpreting is very much performance art, whereas uh, translating is exactly the same experience as writing or editing or writing and editing because you do edit as you go along. So it's interesting. Right. And I was going to say that I'm sure that in terms of translating you have to edit on the fly you know which is the reason why google translate i'm sure hasn't replaced professional translators because you can just throw something into google translate and it'll come out translated but there's no real finesse to it there's no care taken for the uh, for the context or the or the uh, or the grammar the punctuation things like that which is where people like you come in exactly and certainly things such as uh, maybe something is meant to be humorous or maybe there's an acronym or maybe something is poetry and these are things that machines can certainly not do at this at this stage, maybe in the future, but not right now. But it is interesting because a lot of people believe that translating and interpreting are pretty much the same. And let me tell you, it's a totally different experience. Interpreting is very much um, like acting, certainly like improv, at the very least, like a public speaking engagement. And it's not similar to the experience of translating or writing. That's a whole separate thing. I would say that uh, in translating a book, is akin to writing a book. It's very similar. I've done both. I've written a book, I've translated books, and it's quite, quite similar. It's interesting. But interpreting is a separate thing. It feels it feels different. It feels like you were on you are on stage. It feels like you're on stage uh doing something else, maybe during uh giving somebody giving a speech or maybe yeah, it's a different experience, even physically so. Mm-hmm. Now on that subject, I, I have to tell you, I am very impressed with your verbal communication skills. And if I just heard you speaking, I would automatically assume that you did something professionally wherein you speak. So something maybe like translating or something like professional public speaking or motivational speaking. Did you learn how to speak professionally? Did you take any voice coaching? Did you take any improv, any any classes or anything that would improve the way you speak in front of a group of people? I think that's extremely kind of you to say. And actually, I go into detail about that particular point in my book. I used to be very, very, very shy about public speaking, so much so that I would be um, in school and I wouldn't even be able to, you know, raise my hand to answer a question because I would stammer, I would blush, I would, I just couldn't do it. I simply could not. But then um, straight out of um, college while working on my dissertation, I took uh, on um, a teaching job. It was a tutoring job where I would be um, addressing people in, in finance and teaching them financial terms in, in English. So obviously, in order to do that, you do need to speak in public. That's the very nature of, of, of the job. And I just had to make a switch in my mind 
and just get on with it. So it was really something that I had to um, to learn how to do on my own and pretty much overnight. And uh, yeah, it was something that, that I just had to learn to do. But actually, um, let me tell you that the very first experience that I had uh, with feeling comfortable in front of an audience when speaking in public was actually something that happened um, by sheer coincidence. It so happened that I had to give a talk um, at school. It was uh, something that I had to teach a presentation. No, it was a presentation that I had to give in front of my class. And I was not looking forward to that, Christian. I was, uh, you know, horrified. This was something that to me was, I felt like I would go into shock, pass out even if I had to speak in front of a class. But for whatever reason, I also had a lot of homework. So I had to pull an all-nighter and I showed up at school on zero sleep. And, you know, we all think that sleep deprivation is is very, very bad, that we should never be sleep deprived when we need to do something that's important. And I would say that 99% of the time that is true. But there is one upside to sleep deprivation, and that is that you cannot be both exhausted and terrified. You're either exhausted or you're terrified. So I was just so tired that I couldn't even feel scared or nervous, I was just exhausted. So I was able to give a very effective um, presentation. I looked completely confident, I looked completely cool, I was especially assertive, but that was because I was exhausted. So I was actually able to tap into the one upside of sleep deprivation. And it's just, it's just interesting. I think it just, uh, I mean, although uh, sometime after I did learn to speak in public, mostly through a change in, in self-concept, rather than than anything else that one particular time what allowed me to step in front of a room and give a confident presentation was just the fact that i was exhausted there's a comedian that talks about i forget his name but there's a comedian that talks about the concept of stage health how you can be sick as a dog mm -hmm. but if you know you're going to be on stage and the second you step on the stage your body has this ability to compartmentalize the part of you that's sick and wants to go home and cough and sneeze and throw up and sleep. And you can make your you can kind of make it through 20, 30 minutes on stage if you need to and then go home and be sick that, you know, being on stage is almost like an antidote in the moment for all those feelings. Oh, I believe that's very accurate. And I also think that that would be true whenever you have a deadline that you need to meet at work, no matter what line of work you may be in, be it sales, be it uh, journalism. If for whatever reason you need to comply with something by a certain uh, date, you will. And maybe right after you'll just, you know, pass out exhausted or, you know, your cold will show up or whatever the case may be. But I think you can keep it together if there's a deadline looming or there's something very important that you must do. I, I think you're, you're able to do it. It's interesting. Yeah. Oh, the human body is amazing. It's amazing how your body has its way of getting you through it when it needs to. Oh, absolutely. Um, also, I think that it's interesting to, to know that, I mean, obviously it's better not to have any negative feelings or uncomfortable feelings. But sometimes one negative feeling can cancel out another one. I remember that when I first moved here, Christian, I had a tremendous freeway phobia. And the reason was very clear to me. Back in Mexico City, there's like 50 times more traffic than here in L.A. So even if people here complain of traffic, to me, this is nothing. So the freeway to me seemed like people were 
you know, traveling at breakneck speeds. And I am so interested in this right now. I have a friend who is scared to death of driving on the highway. So I am listening with all ears right now. <laughs> well, let me tell you, it was very, I, I just couldn't. I couldn't. The moment I tried to get on the freeway, I would start almost having a full-blown panic attack. I just couldn't. So uh, I just didn't. That's what I did for the first couple of years that I lived here. I would just take surface streets. And that uh, was, on the one hand, terrible because I would take forever to reach any place that I was going to. It did have its subsides. For instance, I did get to see, you know, like little stores, uh, beautiful homes, uh, you know, interesting museums, different things, restaurants. So I got to see more of the city than I would have if I had only highways or freeways. But it was uh, something that I felt that I had to get over. And I really couldn't figure out a way to overcome that. It was just something that I, I simply could not. But then what? Happened, now, what was it about the freeway that scared you? Was it the was it the height? Was it the fact that it was there were a lot of cars around you? Mm, it was crowded. No, not actually. The reverse was true. In Mexico City, there's a lot of traffic, like ten times more traffic than in LA. So in Mexico City, you're always driving slowly. There's no way you can speed because you can't. There's a car in front of you, right? And here, right. people travel at what feels to me like extremely, extremely high um, high speed. So I felt like, like I could get killed easily. I thought uh, if you have an accident while traveling at these speeds, I mean, forget about it. You're, you're dead, right? So right, that was right. very frightening. But what happened, Kristen, was that there was a time in um, 2018 early-ish 2018, that I had this personal issue that made me feel tremendously depressed. I couldn't even breathe. I was so depressed. But I thought, okay, when you're super, super, super depressed, what happens? Well, firstly, your heart rate slows down, right? Because you're so depressed. You kind of, maybe this is an exaggeration, but you kind of lose um, interest in life. Not to say that you're suicidal or anything like that, but it's just not, life seems less appealing. So yes, I, right? So I thought this is the perfect time to conquer freeway phobia. So during those days that I was really feeling awful, I just got on the freeway and I felt no fear whatsoever. Why? Because I was massively depressed. You're either terrified or you're depressed. You cannot be both things at the same time. So what happened was that I was able to uh, to do it. I was able to master, uh, you know, getting on the freeway, maybe not, I mean, I'm not the best driver, but I was able to learn how to do it. And eventually the depression just lifted and well, by then the phobia was no longer. So I was able to, to get rid of that by simply tapping into, you know, the only upside of depression, which is that you cannot possibly be scared if you're depressed. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, independent, listener-supported radio. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air. Support independent community media by pledging whatever you can. All contributions are tax-deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. If you'd like to listen to RFB when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. And please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming RFB events. 
You can sign up at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash newsletter. a journalist in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know a whole lot about um, about the journalism industry in that country. I do know that I've read many stories about how the drug cartels in Mexico uh, like to flex their power or otherwise try to scare journalists in the area that are looking to cover the the activities of of those cartels is that something that you or the company that you work for ever had experience with well i think that not definitely not personally because i was in charge of what is called soft news which involves things um of another nature it involves um entertainment it involves health it involves architecture certain types of business environmental issues and such so i would personally not have been involved in anything uh, of that nature um also the type of newspaper that my newspaper was uh and the people who was aimed towards did not lend itself much to, to that kind of thing. However, that is very real. It's very, very real. Um, and I think that, here's the thing, to me, that is uh, a big problem in Mexico, but that is not the main problem in Mexico. The main problem in Mexico to me has not even been addressed internationally, perhaps because I, its ramifications are not as felt worldwide. But to me, the, the main problem or the main social problem is, um, uh, femicide, which is the uh, killing of women based on on nothing but their gender. I mean, a lot of women are killed uh, every day in in Mexico as a country, and there are very specific places where that happens more more and more often. And it's very unclear as to why this happens. There was a time in in uh, a few years back where in this city called uh, Juarez or Ciudad Juarez. Uh, a lot of people were being killed for the most women. For the most part, these were women working in factories. For the most part, these were women that were very, very poor, destitute, probably without any families. So they were easy targets. But again, it was never very clear as to who was doing the killing. Was it uh, ritualistic? Was it uh, snuff films? Was it uh, some kind of a satanic thing? It's, it's very unclear. It never was cleared up. And I don't believe that uh, there was much progress in in tr figuring out what was going on. And in more recent years, this has been going on um, on another level. It's not so much uh, women that are, you know, uh, that don't have a family or anything. It's mostly younger girls with a certain physical uh, similarity. Uh, mostly, let's say, young professionals, but not, uh, not very established, let's say, lower middle class. And it's one after the other. And to me, that's very concerning. It's not very clear as to why, who, why. And the blanket explanation is that a lot of women are killed by 
boyfriends and husbands. And I don't say that that's not true. I mean, surely that can be true in, in any country. But no, I think it's something else. I mean, it's obviously something else. And that's very concerning. And the very fact that no uh, real leeway has been made as to clarifying what's going on leads me to believe that there's some kind of cover-up by somebody in some circumstance on a very high level that nobody understands. So certainly, I mean, there's there's something going on. If somebody were to be covering that up, what would that person or that entity stand to gain from that? That's the thing, because I'm not very clear on why it's even happening. I mean, who's doing the killing? Obviously, it's not one individual. It's not one lone serial killer. Of course not. It's it's something bigger. But why? I mean, it's it's very strange. And I've seen a few documentaries uh, both on TV and as shorts, movie shorts, uh, or shorter documentaries about that topic. But for whatever reason, it's not something that is covered much internationally. It's, it doesn't make international headlines. And even within Mexico, I don't think it's necessarily the main focus. However, there was an, uh, before COVID, right before COVID broke out in early, um, 2020, there was one specific day, it was the 9th, but what was it? 9th, February 9th, I where um, women across Mexico decided to do uh, this special campaign, which would require all of them to stay home, not contribute to the economy in any way, by which I mean no shopping, no working, no nothing, no internet, nothing, so that um, their absence could be felt, so that the country could see what would happen if they were all to die or disappear. I mean, certainly that's a very dramatic statement, but you know, it got overshadowed by COVID, which broke out just a few days after. Incredible. And you would think that in the current sociopolitical climate with this beautiful newfound sense of female empowerment that so many women around the world are feeling, you would think that all all eyes would be trained on an issue like that. I mean, that's horrible. It's horrifying. But I think that this is, uh, here's the thing. I don't believe that, um, well, of course, it depends on, on your culture, your uh, country or whatnot. But I think uh, women's experience versus men's experiences are not as different as the um, different experiences women might have based off of their uh, socioeconomic standing. So for instance, I would say that my personal experience would be very similar to that of a man of my same, let's say, uh, academic level or whatnot, much more so than that of a woman that's, I don't know, an heiress, a millionaire, or uh, a poor woman living on the streets is what I feel. And many of these, um, these uh, people that are being taken and killed, perhaps, uh, I mean, they're they're not. Um, perhaps there's no not as much interest in what's going on with them as there would be if they were more prominent in society. I think it's horrible, it's and horrible. you know, it makes me feel like I wish there was something I could do. What could a person do other than other than amplify messages like this and letting people know, hey, this is a thing that's going on in the world? What, in your opinion, is something somebody could do that maybe someone who feels far removed from a place like Mexico. The thing is that even when you're there, it does feel far removed because it's not your buddies, it's not your friends, it's not your co-workers, it's people in 
other specific cities? It's it's very hard to say. My my mother and also my brother have worked in different um, government agencies and fields where they touch upon those issues and also on human trafficking, which is a big international problem. But it's very similar to what I'm describing is very similar to international human trafficking. It happens under our noses and we're not aware. We just don't know. I mean, I'm pretty sure that in any city here in the U.S., there's people that have been trafficked and we have no clue. We don't see them. We don't notice them. It's just a thing. It's very strange. It's not even, it's not like you say, but it's, it has to be people in a remote place. Maybe they're in another country, different city. No, they're right there. You just don't see them. Right. It's, it's very, but the thing is that it's, it's very hard to, I have no idea how you could stop that. I mean, it's something that, that is just making people aware of the fact that it exists and just keeping your eyes open for things that might look strange. And sure, sure, sure enough, sooner or later, you find things that are not, not normal. And you, I mean, of course, a light should be, you know, placed on, on that, right? Sure. Now, as a woman in Mexico with a journalistic voice, regardless of the type of newspaper you worked for, was there any implicit danger in the idea of you amplifying this voice or bringing attention to this problem? I personally don't think so, although I have to say, like, full disclosure, that I was uh, a victim of, of crime in Mexico, but that I, I wouldn't want listeners to assume that it's in any way like this dangerous, horrible place. That's not the case at all. Mexico City specifically has uh, is the city with the most museums in the world, tied with London. That's one thing. It has beautiful uh, places, great nightlife. The people are wonderful. It's very, a very glamorous city. However, my own personal experience was that I personally was a victim of crime. I was held up at knife point and gunpoint, but that was not a function of being a journalist or a woman. It was just a function of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, really. What was the place? How did that happen? And if you, if, if you want to talk about it, if not, I will cut right here. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. It's, it's not a problem at all. Actually, this was uh, before Uber, so it was still taxis. And it was uh, a while back. It was in the, um, I think it was in the late 90s or early, yeah, it was in the late 90s. So um, what happened was that a friend of mine and my date, we were going to go to a party, but for whatever reason, we weren't going to drive. So we took a, a taxi and all of a sudden at a stoplight, uh, two men step into the car and that was uh, a guy with a gun and a guy with a knife. So uh, they did something that now is kind of, uh, well, I mean, if it had happened more recently, I would have understood that they were not planning on killing us, just robbing us. But at the time, this was not something that, that we understood. This is something that is called sequestro express or express abduction or express kidnapping, where uh, the kidnappers um, have you close your eyes and they're very menacing and they're very threatening and they keep telling you that they're going to kill you. And of course, they take all of your belongings and then they want your um, your pin for the ATM. And uh, they go to ATMs and they clean out your account. And because there is a cap on how much money they can uh, withdraw that particular day, they keep you with them until the following day so that they can get some more money. And that's exactly what happened. Um, so here's the thing. It was terrifying, especially because these guys kept saying that they were going to kill us. And in fact, once the car stopped, uh, after they had robbed us blind, uh, they said that we should step outside because they would shoot us once we stepped outside. So it was like, 
okay, now this is horrible. Like, do I stay inside the car? Well, that's awful. Do I step outside of the car? That's also awful. Now, clearly they did not kill us or anything. They just drove off. They So we were spared, basically. But it was uh, terrifying. However, I wouldn't say that that should put people off of the country or the city. That was just my personal experience. I wouldn't say that that is uh, the norm or anything like that. And, I mean, I lived there for a very, very long time. And that was, I mean, one specific incident, right? So that's not, not necessarily the norm. But it was my experience. And that was also one of the reasons that that I felt that I would be more comfortable here because I was getting a little paranoid, but that's just in my own head. It wasn't necessarily based off of real stats or any any real danger, I think. Well, I agree that it's probably no more the norm in Mexico as it is in a place like New York or Los Angeles. But right. at the same time, God bless you and your attitude regarding having survived this thing. I, I don't know. I don't know how long it would take me to get over something like that happening to me or God forbid my wife or or, you know, that's 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 incredible. I have never heard of anyone going through something like that. Well, it was quite horrifying. But the thing is that it also gives you a better appreciation for uh, for life. I mean, certainly, I mean, you never know. I mean, life is just so fragile that you really need to uh, relish every moment that you personally are alive or that you are with your friends, uh, with your family, certainly your spouse. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it does give you a, a better appreciation. That's for sure. I'm sure it does. And I'm sure that's covered in your book to some degree. Yes, absolutely. Please tell me, Especially uh, tell me the name of your book. I don't think in this in, in any of this conversation you've mentioned it. I want to hear about your book. Oh, OK. So the title of the book is Choose to Prevail. And the um, idea behind the book is prevailing over whatever it is that is causing you grief, be it a, a large problem, such as, well, the death of a loved one, or something very minor, like a minor annoyance, or being stuck in traffic, or somebody blocked you online, you know, minor things. So I think that be it uh, a big problem or a small problem, often it can be overcome by reframing it and also by taking very specific practical steps and that's pretty much the the idea behind the book what a useful <laughs> book and i feel like the world's output of grief in the past year has been so much significantly higher that i'm sure a lot of people now more than ever need the message of a book like that thank you so much i hope that that is the case i i wanted to um Certainly not not all of it focuses on something as dramatic or as uh, overarching as COVID, although it is addressed. I also mentioned things that might be smaller, like maybe people having insecurity about uh, their physical appearance or the way they come across when speaking in public or uh, just the fact that many people are overly self-conscious. So it's a little bit of everything. It does cover uh, the larger issues and the smaller issues. Just and my intention is that the reader walks away feeling um, a greater sense of peace and a greater sense of confidence, basically. And where can listeners get it? Is it on Amazon? Yes, it's actually available uh, in even more places than I expected it to be. It's on Amazon, it's on Barnes & Noble, it's on Target.com, uh, Walmart eBooks, uh, smaller independent bookstores like the Book Baby Bookshop, and I've even seen it on eBay Australia. So, I mean, it, it should be... Wow! <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome! Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Fantastic. Well, I, I hope everybody goes and gets a copy of it. Thank you so much, Christine. You're a sweetheart. Hopefully, hopefully. Oh, it's, it's, 
I, I, I hope they do. Thank you for having this conversation with me and sharing everything that you shared with me. I feel like I've heard some amazing things from you and I feel like I've gotten to know you. I'm glad we're not strangers anymore. I agree. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good uh, rest of your evening. Stay safe. Good luck with the book and work and everything in your life, everything creative, uh, everything. Just good luck with everything. <laughs> Thank you, Christian. You're welcome. You have a good evening. All right, Sandy? All right. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Stranger Than Christian is produced by me, Christian Carrion, from my studio in Lancaster City, Pennsylvania. Join me every Monday at 2 a.m. on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org for a brand new episode. And listen to my entire catalog of episodes on all major streaming services and at StrangerThanChristian.com. If you enjoy the show, support me on Patreon. You'll receive lots of perks and bonus content, including unedited, ad-free episodes of the show. Go to patreon.com slash strangerthanchristian to give your support. Until next week, thank you so much for tuning in to Stranger Than Christian on Radio Free Brooklyn, part of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. I'm Christian Carrion. Good night. If you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods, and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out their website at www.cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. Also, check out a live tour every Saturday at 10 a.m. on Instagram.com slash cityrunningtours. Hey there, robo-fans and dino-fans. Do you like science fiction? Do you like movies about robots and dinosaurs? Do you like podcasts that explore sci-fi philosophy through a fun and positive lens? Then you are going to love robots versus dinosaurs. Every week, your host, Louis G, invites a guest onto the show to talk about one of their favorite sci-fi movies. It's a RoboCast. It's a DinoCast. It's a battle for ultimate awesomeness in science fiction pop culture. Subscribe to Robots vs. Dinosaurs on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Friday. Follow us on Instagram at RobosVDinos or Twitter at VsRobots. That is at VsRobots. with trash comedy is the podcast where we trade sweet sweet facts like they're dirty little pieces of gossip we're a new york based comedy team and we're joined each week with a funny delightful friend after each person shares their facts we rate those facts from oh my god that's not hot that's as cold as the coldest ice you've ever seen to oh my god that's so spicy my mouth is gone so if that made sense to you then please join us on mondays wherever you get your podcasts Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to ApocalypsePodcastNetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard.